Welcome to Funding the Future, a special edition of Category Visionaries, where instead of interviewing founders, we interview the VCs and angel investors that back them with capital, resources, and advice. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Kendrick Co, co-founder and GP of Sierra Madre. Kendrick, thanks for chatting with me today. Of course. Thank you, Brett, for having me on the show. Yeah, not a problem at all. So to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? That's right. So happy to do so. As mentioned, as so gracefully introduced by Brett, my name is Kendrick Haluzko, and I co-founded Sierra Madre with my former co-worker and good friend, Jack Coleman. As for Sierra Madre, Sierra Madre is a venture firm that invests in and supports the founders and visionaries, narrowing the gap between what we call effectively humanity's infinite demand and finite supply. And that's a broad mission statement. What that translates to concretely is that we invest in those individuals and teams working on technology, a lot of it's ass, of course, that expands the capabilities of enterprises and industries across the world. We are based in San Francisco, but we are open to innovation anywhere. And we think that's really the type of game-changing innovation Rather, it's location agnostic, right? So, of course, many people build in Silicon Valley, but we have in our past invested in entrepreneurs in Sub-Saharan Africa, in Southeast Asia. I've worked with entrepreneurs in Europe, and of course, all throughout the United States. If we were to go deeper into the background, into my route into VC, I used to be an engineer. I focused on energy engineering in the past. Uh, that's what I studied at Stanford, and I worked at a couple startups that were focused on the energy sector. I parlayed that engineering background into a data science career, and that's when I started pitching VCs. It's the 21st century, right? Like, can we do something better than gut feel, handshake, look them in the eyes, you know, feels good. And so my pitch was, let's try to augment this decision-making with data science with machine learning, with we would call artificial intelligence today. And that's when somebody bit. So I have had this dual career, so to say, one half as a traditional venture investor, where I would talk to entrepreneurs, I would try to diligence their startups, help them out along the way. And in parallel, using the lessons, the firsthand experiences as a VC, I built tools for VCs. I built that data augmentation layer, you know, enhanced decision making, all these principles from a quantitative or a data driven decision making lens. I built those as tools and as products for VCs. And that brings me to my career today, where wrapping that all together, those seven years of experience doing both of those things into my own venture firm. And what was it like for you in this journey as you decided to branch off and start your own fund? Was that anxiety? <laughs> Were you scared as you thought about that idea of doing your own thing? Or what was going on inside your head as you made that decision? I think for me, it felt like the time was right. Seven years of experience, a lot of it calling shots, not all of it, of course, but the tail end of that seven years, I was able to make investment decisions. I was the interface with those entrepreneurs. I wasn't just one part of a monolithic team. So I felt like the time was right. 
of course there's anxiety there were questions there still are questions of course about and myself and my co-founder can we raise this fund will we do a good job the all these struggles of building right there's the execution aspect of it and then there's the emotional aspect of it and i think some of the bigger challenges that i've been experiencing in the last in these last few months have been the emotional side of things right it's not going so well we expected more we thought the outcome of this meeting would be very positive and this pitch didn't go the way we thought it would be but i think that's part and parcel of the building or founding something experience so i don't think i had a crazy amount of anxiety and i feel like i've been as prepared as i could be to go on this journey but certainly i think it's natural to feel anxiety whether or not you're building a startup or a venture firm or a small business or a consultancy i think it's just natural and what have your conversations been like with lps over the last couple of months obviously there the market's been crazy there's a lot going on there's a, <laughs> a lot of pain in the market what have those conversations been like with lps and how receptive have they been to backing a new fund? Well, this is a tale I should say that's still being written. We're still fundraising, but we have worked with LPs in the past. And the conversations lately have been, you know, more of a wait and see. And maybe I'm not answering the question directly, but we have had to adapt our fundraising techniques and our strategy to account for the fact that there are many LPs around here, I'm talking about the United States or in well-traversed markets that, you know, maybe they've had their fair share of exposure. Maybe they've gotten their asses kicked by investing in startups. And we've had better luck going a little further afield and trying to offer, shall we say, Silicon Valley or United States tech, you know, like a firsthand eyes and feet on the ground experience for LPs who may not traditionally have been targeted by VCs. And I think there the reception has been more open. I don't think it's been, it hasn't been easy sailing, right? It still takes some time to get them to sign on the dotted line and all of those, you know, to, to make the investment and the LP commitment complete. But I think there's a more openness. And I liken this to a startup's journey, right? Like somebody told me, it was a founder that told me like the startup founder experience is building something that people inherently don't want by default and you convincing them that they want it. And to the extent that I or startup founders can find those potential customers that are more inclined to say yes, than by default saying no, all the better and all the easier. And in your journey so far, what's been the most surprising thing that you encountered that you maybe didn't expect you would encounter as you started to raise fund one? To be frank, Brent, I don't know how to answer this like, because I don't, nothing comes to mind. Mm -hmm. I'm just living in the moment and taking each punch as it comes. And I can't think of, you know, like we expected that it would be difficult, right? And we're finding that it's difficult. We expected that a lot of people would look at track record and you know, all of these things and they have, which maybe helping, you know, talking through this helped me realize maybe one thing that was most surprising. And it's a hypothesis that we have. I'm not necessarily sure if it's true, but that 
my sense, what surprised me the most is that LPs seem to actually appreciate sometimes a far simpler story or a far simpler categorization. Maybe it's the type of people we talk to, but oftentimes in these LP conversations or in our postmortems or our recaps, it might have just been easier to say, like, we invest in unicorn founders than go through a bunch of logic and and defend this differentiation and so on. I'm not sure if that's true. Like, that's a story that hasn't fully played out. But sometimes I feel like I could have just said my job description and that would have been easier for the LP to understand and, and trust. <laughs> that's super interesting. And in terms of track record, are there any numbers you can share just in terms of like the number of investments that you've made as an angel investor? And then if there's any you know big names that you can share that you've invested in, I think our audience would, of course, you know, love to hear that as well. Of course. I will expand beyond just the angel investor into my track record at Global Founders Capital as a partner. I will also fold in the track record of my co-founder because we have these numbers really vetted and you know, cleaned up on our deck. Mm-hmm. So if you were to add my track record as an investment professional with the, on the deals that I did, right? Not just like I was on the team. And you add that with my co-founder, we've made about 125 investments into about 80 companies for an invested capital base of about 55 million. This is at the early stage. We have different numbers if we were to fold in late stage stuff, but we're talking pre-seed, seed, series A, right? The things that, that's our bread and butter. That's what people want to know. Out of that 55 million invested, we've turned that into about $415 million of current value. It's about seven and a half X, and it's about 115% IRR. Some of the big names that people will recognize are Deal. So I was one of the first investors in Deal. I committed before they were even called Deal. They were not even in Y Combinator yet. At the time, they were called Sidex. We have some other big names like Slope, which is a B2B payments platform, we'll say. It sits in the payment flow and helps with things like buy now, pay later, automated underwriting, and so on. There's Field Guide, which is vertical SaaS for the audit and assurance and advisory industry. There's Expedoc, which is for 3PLs, freight forwarders, to better centralize and process a lot of their documentation and the data that comes from it. There are a number of these standout companies. And if we look further afield, not just in that SaaS category, we've invested in SpaceX. We've also invested in Stoke Space, which has a reusable second stage I won't go into the details here. We can talk about it more <laughs> offline or if somebody wants is curious, they can ping me. We invested in universal hydrogen, which is creating the hydrogen supply chain and overall value chain, I should say, for the aviation industry, including retrofits of existing airliners today. So those are some highlights as far as the names that people will recognize. And if people are interested, I have a more full list on my LinkedIn and on our website, sharemadrid.vc. It's not there yet, but it will be there soon. We're just seeing what exactly we're going to highlight and feature as far as the teams who have worked with in the past and what might resonate the best with our message and with what our LPs are looking for. 
And over these years, I'm sure you've had the chance to interact with a lot of incredible founders. Do you think there's any specific traits that they all have in common or there any patterns that you've seen from these interactions with founders? Yes. I have two in my head. So I'll, I'll tackle the first one, tackle the second one. The first one, I haven't quite labeled. I have this working term, I call it like desperate urgency, but it is this trait that an entrepreneur, you know, a top entrepreneur or a, the best founders I've worked with have this paranoia almost that they're missing something. And thus, I should say they're missing something internal to their company, something that they can control or some interaction with a customer. So they're always on top of things, like neurotically on top of things that are going on at their company. And it really speaks to how much of a priority building this business is in their life. I'm not saying that it must be their all-consuming goal, but from what I've seen, right, there are some founders who are incredibly responsive because they're on top of things and they're paranoid they're missing something. And really, those are the ones who don't let things slip through the cracks. They take the initiative, they're aggressive, and that is inherent to their success. If we were to take, for example, Alex, Alex Bozzi the deal. I think he's actually said very similar things about being on top of things, the priority, like that's, there's no productivity hack. That's how he succeeds by being on top of everything. He, I'm pretty sure I've messaged him at 2 a.m. his time, 3 a.m. his time, 4 a.m. his time on WhatsApp, and he'll pretty much respond immediately after he wakes up or he's still awake at 2, 3, 4, 5 a.m. and he, he messages me back, even if it's something trivial, right? Same thing, I can ping him on Instagram too and he'll respond pretty quickly. So they can't help but think that they're going to be missing something if they're not constantly aware of their various touch points inside their company and outside their company. So that's category one or trait one, this desperate urgency. I don't know if you, somebody will come up with a better name and please message me about it because I'm trying to figure out what's what's a nice name that I can put on it with a bow on top, but uh, that's what I'll call it for now. The second important trait, and this is something that we look at at Sierra Madre very closely, is this concept that we have coined founder problem fit, which is not founder market fit, right? Most people actually do think, okay, first impression, founder market fit, but no, no, no. We call it founder problem fit because at any given time within a company's life cycle, right, it's pre-seed, seed, series A, or even later, we believe that there are a number of key risks that determine most whether this company will survive and succeed. And there, there's usually one kind of overarching key risk not just in the next six months or 12 months, but there's one that will really define, will this company make or break it in the long run? And we view it as, you know, domain expertise can be helpful, but you don't need some special domain expertise. Living some kind of issue that they're building for or being the user firsthand, that can be useful, but it's not essential. What is essential is that the founders of a business and what we've seen in the top founders that we have backed are that they have the skill sets that they have practiced, that they have built, that they have aligned to address the key risk 
in their business. And just to give a trivial example, this isn't, I'm not talking about any particular company right now, but you can imagine that there are, let's say there's a consumer startup, right? Oriented towards social network sorts of things, right? And the founders could be AI PhDs from Stanford. And normally Silicon Valley would fawn over that profile. Okay. These two or three founders have PhDs from Stanford. Maybe they were lecturers and they were working on groundbreaking AI tech, right? But this company around like social network, consumer stuff is not make or break key risk around their technical expertise, right? There are other key risks that define whether this consumer company will, will live or die. And that's what I mean. I want to see, and I believe the best founders we've backed have really high alignment between the key risk and their core skill set, or they find somebody and add that skill set to the team. Hopefully that makes sense. Makes perfect sense. And that's super insightful to hear. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Now, if you had to guess, which I'm sure it's hard to do, but if you had to guess how many... Pitches have you sat in on or, or heard from founders, would you say, over the course of your time in venture? I've been in venture for seven years at GFC, Global Founders Capital, where I was last. We invest, I invested in 65 companies. And as part of my time at Hone Capital, which was the very first firm that I'd worked at, I was involved in about 250 investments. And you have to imagine that my conversion rate, right? Like, maybe only 0.5% of those pitches actually led to an investment. So I'm not going to pull out the calculator and do math here, but it is, you know, if we said I did somewhere in the neighborhood of 350 investments divided by 0.5%, that probably sounds too high, but I would say comfortably in the tens of thousands of pitches over the last seven years. And if that sounds crazy, there were times in my life where we were doing literally listening to 20 pitches a day in 30 minute slots. So it was about 10 hours of listening to pitches. <laughs> How do you sustain yourself in these 10 hour pitch runs like that? Are you just drinking a lot of Red Bull and coffee or how can you focus for that long? I feel like my brain would just be fried after the first two or three hours. I mean, I hate to say it because it is, it is a tragedy and people have put their life's effort right, into some of these. But a lot of times, you know, you just determine this is not a fit for you or for your firm. There's no affinity here, right? So you kind of just, you say, I'm going to save my cognitive load, my, my bandwidth, and this pitch is just not going to work out. You're going to give some feedback, but it's not something that we really have to be fully 100% there. Now, there are a lot of very high quality things that might be very highly aligned. And yeah, that's when you're leaning in that's when hopefully you do have a Red Bull nearby or something, but it's a skill set. And I think people do have to reserve some of their emotional and intellectual energy for the ones where they think, you know, it's right for me. It's right for my firm versus eh, good luck to you. You actually are exceptional, 
but it's just not going to happen with us, right? At least maybe not now. And in those thousands and thousands of pitches, are there any patterns when it comes to like red flags or things that you would just see founders routinely make mistakes on when they were pitching you? Yeah. There's a couple of things I would say, like top pieces of, I hate to say it, it will feel like general advice, but the top pieces of general advice, I would say, and as a side note, if anyone wants to get specific to their specific case, feel free to email me or or ping me on LinkedIn because we can dive specifically into one company, one pitch. But generally, my top piece of general advice is to keep it coherent, simple, and cognitively easy to grasp. We just talked about going through, maybe it's not 10 pitches, or maybe it's not 20 pitches that day, but maybe it's 10 pitches or five pitches. And that drains the energy of someone listening to it, whether it's an angel investor, a professional investor, even a potential customer, right? So you really want to try to keep it cognitively easy to grasp, something that's nice and sharp. And you say that phrase, they get it instantly. For example, you you could say, I'm building GitHub for ML models. It doesn't need to be X for Y, but just as an example, that's saying GitHub for ML models is probably a lot easier, a lot cleaner than trying to explain things from scratch with all these caveats and stuff. Just keep it nice and clean. Keep it recognizable because the, the people, the audience, they're just going through way too much stuff and they are tuning out because they're saving their intellectual and emotional energy for the next thing, right? I think the second piece of general advice or this kind of like warning that I would say is that many entrepreneurs that I interact with, they kind of fail to grasp where the market is. And I'm putting this market in air quotes. If the video was on, you could see me, but yeah, they, they fail to grasp where the market is and what the market is looking for at any given time. So for example, there are open source dev tool startups today. A lot of them that I've talked to, they're trying to raise a seed or a pre-seed or a series A, and they're using heuristics and uh, you know, general benchmarks that they've learned that were applicable three years ago or two years ago or five years ago, right? It's not a threshold of GitHub stars anymore that matter, right? The market, air quotes, has shifted to prioritize landing that first dollar of revenue. It's prioritized to shift towards economic efficiency, right? Like capital efficiency, we did X with Y amount of staff instead of Y plus 20 amount of staff. We grew lower, but we burned less, right? We closed that first customer who got that first dollar in. That's the second biggest piece of advice is the, let's match what your expectations are or what the market's expectations are with what your expectations are and what you're trying to come across or or communicate through messaging. And on a concrete side, that's done by talking to other entrepreneurs. That's talking to friendly investors. That's talking to even accelerators or incubators. That's done by even going to tech Twitter and trying to find the new normal, the new expectation that way. Because it's brutal, I'll tell you, Brett, when an entrepreneur thought that they could raise a Series A this many dollars because they had, you know, ABC 
qualitative or quantitative milestone when they can't. Yeah, I can imagine. What about your views when it comes to category creation? So do you have strong opinions there? Do you typically urge founders to go and try to create a new category or do you advise them to disrupt an existing category or does it really just depend on the market and the the category they're in? I think, Brett, every case is different. I hate to say it, but my perspective, like my personal style of investing and Sierra Madre's style of investing really shies away from market risk. So I can't give blanket advice, but I can say that as an investor, for me, we just don't want to, or we're not comfortable with accepting market risk. That's why we love it when entrepreneurs come to us and say, and when they say we are disrupting an existing market, there is existing spend here, or you know, this market seems moderate at scale, but it's actually supply constrained. And thus, if we can provide that service or that product, we're going to unlock, you know, we're going to double this market or triple this market. But we really shy away from there's no market here and we're trying to create it. That just makes us very nervous because that's not our mentality as investors. And rather, I should say that other investors are comfortable with that kind of risk. And you just have to find those investors who are willing to accept market risk, right? If we flip this around, a lot of investors might not be comfortable with product risk or technical risk or regulatory risk. And we at Sierra Madre can get comfortable with all of those. But that one particular category of market risk is just uh, beyond our comfort zone. And so my advice, but again, don't take this as gospel. If you're coming to us for funding, don't category create. <laughs> Focus on disrupting something existing. Nice. Let's get to know for any of the founders who are going to you know, reach out after my final question here. And my final question is, what types of opportunities are you looking for? Are there any specific markets that you're especially excited about? There are. If we were to answer this more broadly, I'm interested, and we at Sierra Madre are interested in working with entrepreneurs at any stage of their journey. Our bread and butter is seed and series A, but we have experience with working with partnering or advising or supporting entrepreneurs who haven't even left their day job yet. And we have experience partnering with teams, supporting teams that are series C, series D, series E. So really any SaaS founder or any founder, frankly, in the target markets are welcome to come to us. Now, what are the target markets? Frankly, anything that in expand the capabilities of SMBs, enterprises, and industry is welcome to come to us. The notable exception here is, or exclusion, I should say, is consumer. We're not really, we're not the best consumer investors, I should say, or it's not our focus, right? There are a lot of consumer investors out there. It is a category that have created exceptional companies in the past with billions, tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars of market value. But we're just not, we don't have the mental models. We don't have the support system. We don't have the frameworks to help entrepreneurs building in those consumer segments. But when it comes to enterprises, SMBs, and industry, anything that goes into that, even if it has a hardware component, we're comfortable with. And boring industries, I'm putting that in air quotes again, boring 
traditional industries, no problem for us, partly because there is far less market risk. We know that there's a multi-billion dollar market if you're targeting plumbers, HVAC, these other things, logistics, energy, manufacturing. These are multi, multi, multi-billion dollar industries with not much market risk because we know of how much money is being spent in those industries. So we're open for business to those boring traditional. That's not to say that's the only people we we are interested in, but really, we're, we're really open to those. I mean, if I was to wrap this all together more cleanly and more succinctly, work we invest in teams, work on technology that expands the capabilities of SMBs, enterprises, and industry. We'll leave it at that. Amazing. I love it. Well, Kendrick, we are up on time, so we're going to have to wrap here. Before we do, if any founders want to get in touch with you, where should they go? Of course. Thank you, Brett. Anybody who wants to get in touch with me, founders, people looking for a job, corporate partners, potential LPs, you know, fingers crossed, they can ping me at Kendrick at sierramadre.vc. There's no dashes or underlines or anything in Sierra Madre. So S-I-E-R-R-A-M-A-D-R-E dot VC, or they can find me on LinkedIn. Those two are the best channels to reach me. And I try to be very responsive. So no matter who you are, feel free to reach out no matter what the topic, and we'll see what we can do together. Amazing. Kendrick, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. I really appreciate it. And I really enjoyed this conversation. And I know our audience is going to as well. So thanks again for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so much, Brett. Take care. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. Oh,